Hi, it's Zoe. And today we're talking with Tim Collings, who is a fellow leadership expert. And so I loved talking a little bit of shop with him, as well as hearing about his own really fascinating leadership journey from the UK over to Australia. Tim started out as a recruiter, and he spent a lot of time in executive recruitment in the UK and then in Australia, where he eventually threw it all in two days before he's about to have his first child and set up his own company called 4i Leadership. So Tim has an exquisite philosophy on leadership that I really resonated with, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. We talk about the differences that he found in leading Gen X and Gen Y teams, mixed teams, and how he had to shift his approach for each of them, which I hadn't heard before, so that was a nice insight. He talks about writing a eulogy for your business as a way of getting across your lasting brand presence and legacy, which I love. And then we dive a really deep dive into the 4i leadership philosophy that really has allowed him to sustain leadership principles and approach with the people that he works with. So please enjoy Tim. Awesome. We are here today with Tim Collings, who is a Palmy friend living in Sydney. I can't wait to hear his story about how he ended up over here being a migrant myself. I always love to hear about people's origin stories. And we are diving straight into some juicy topics that we both love on leadership. So a great pleasure to invite you and to welcome Tim Collings. Hello, and thank you, Zoe. It's a real pleasure to be here. So what does a Palm do for entertainment outside of work? Well, I mean, the best thing about Australia for me, considering where I grew up, is the fact that I get to spend so much, what I'm going to say is easy time outside. I mean, I grew up in the countryside in the UK. It was all about the outdoors there as it is now here for me. So to answer your question immediately, when I'm not working, I'm outdoors. I'm either building the garden or playing with the kids or running or biking or I'm trying to learn how to paddleboard. Yeah, or swimming, falling off the panel board. Um, so, but it's just a be- the big benefit is the fact that, you know, the sun actually shines most of the time. <laughs> and <laughs> it when it's pretty good. When it's, I mean, I don't, you know, sort of live in one of the colder parts of the country. So even in the winter, you know, compared to scraping the frost off your car or, you know, dressing up like a Michelin person just to go outside. Yeah, that having been said, I always did go outside and I got introduced to this great, sort of philosophy um, by some Icelanders. Uh, my brother uh, lived and worked in Reykjavik for, uh, for a while. And over there, they just said, there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. <laughs> well, I think that's a Canadian principle as well, because people are like, how do you survive in minus 35? I'm like, Ugh. yeah, you have a lot of clothing on. You don't expose any skin except for your eyeballs. And uh, that's how you get through it. Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, you have to be conscious of heat here and, and, and sun exposure and all that kind of stuff, but it's so much more pleasurable. Yeah, that's right. It is a beautiful culture. So how did you end up over here? So now that we know that you have a little bit of fun outdoors in the sunshine and get your pasty white, your pasty <laughs> white palmy skin out there. Thank you very much. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm pasty too, um, having been born in England. So my parents are uh, British as well. So what led you out here? How did you end up in Sydney? Yeah, I mean, it, so it is actually a, a kind of a potent combination of leadership, not to you know, sort of drag us straight into the work stuff, but it, yeah, it was a combination of leadership and the classic migrant love story. So I was brought over here, or I could you know, be more mercantile and said bought you know, over here. Um, <laughs> they bought you. <laughs> they bought me. Um, 
yeah, I was offered essentially a transfer, a promotion, yeah, and a, and, and a step up, and, and my yeah biggest leadership challenge at the time, which actually was far greater than they knew, and certainly they told me. Yes, I moved over uh, from East Anglia um, in the UK to run a, a business in Western Sydney in 2006, and uh, at the age, ripe old age of 26, and then I've been here a year. Met this fabulous Aussie girl who I've now been married to for seven years and we have two kids and you know we've traveled around the world together and done all kinds of fabulous things so that's what brought me here that's what kept me here all right so you got you got bought and brought over hoodwinked into solving problems in a big company which was that really like your first deep dive into leadership struggles at that place in western sydney a hundred percent me personally. Yes. I mean, I'd spent a relatively short period of time, you know, only sort of three years working in the UK, you know, supporting leaders to overcome their challenges and was, you know, essentially managing a couple of very capable people who were highly autonomous and didn't really need me to do very much other than just feed them work. And then, you know, I remember the tipping point in the conversation uh, with the, the sort of the national director over here who was trying to sort of feel me out and scope exactly what, to apply me to and he just basically kind of paused the conversation and said look you know what do you want to do you know we can put you in the city you know in the ivory tower and you can just kind of sit there and make money you know do you want status prestige what do you want to do and i and i said to him really they actually offered you stuff like that yeah i mean we are he's a very frank yeah he's a great guy um matt gribble and yeah and he was just he was very very straight up down to earth yeah um and i said matt i'll tell you what i want to do you know i want to build a business and learn how to run one and i mean i literally said to him i will do that out of a phone box if you show me the strong enough business case like i have no airs and graces i don't need to see the opera house out of the window i just want to learn to run a business and he immediately said okay in which case it's easy i know exactly where to put you and that sealed my fate and uh what what was ironic about that was i he basically then said right so you know the biggest growth market for us at the moment in australia is in Parramatta. you know in you know in western sydney it's an industrial area and i said yeah fine 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 no problem with all of that you know i mainly worked with industrials distribution companies sort of you know um, rolling stock uh businesses and um I then went and spoke to some colleagues and peers and, and sort of trusted advisors who'd worked in Australia as well. And they said, right, the one thing you've got to make sure you don't do is let them put you in Parramatta. <laughs> now, they, do it to all the po- they do it to all the Brits when they come over. They go, you've got to go and do your time. You've got to earn your dues out in the West and, and then we'll, we'll put you in a nice bit. But, you know, it was a baptism of fire. What had been a very high performing business, essentially off the back of an extremely capable guy who was running the business, you know, really through his own brand, turned out to be a two-year-long turnaround. Um, wow. you know, yeah, yeah. The capability in the team, you know, needed to be different. You know, the way that uh, that they responded to my very <laughs> unevolved leadership style needed to be recalibrated, um, and ultimately, we needed a lot more people. So, I inherited four people, build that up to twelve over two years yeah we had a lot of hard-won lessons along the way and it was it was a retrospectively it was a very good learning experience in the moment it was everything that young leaders experience you know confusing stressful exhilarating taxing (laughs) (laughs) de-stressing so what was the hardest part about that experience i mean it wasn't what you expected it was a turnaround opportunity so from a business 
bottom line point of view, it would have been stressful. What, what was the other key things that were, were difficult for you in that experience? But the key learning for me was that what you do is not how you lead. You know, so it was the classic promotion of a functional expert, functional high performer into a leadership role where you need a fundamentally different skill set. So, you know, basics like delegation, good delegation is about enablement and empowerment. General delegation, what most people did and what certainly what I did in my you know, sort of mid twenties was tell people what to do based on how you do it, <laughs> uh, which is essentially at best giving someone a set of instructions and going execute that please. You know, and, and that just didn't work. You know, I mean, I traveled around the world. You know, I'd been well exposed to different markets outside of the UK, but I didn't take enough time then to recalibrate myself culturally. And frankly, I was arrogant. You know, as a high performer at 26 years old, I thought I knew all the answers and I just needed to show people that those answers were the truth that they needed as well. And of course, that's not the case. That's not the case when you move into a new market on the opposite side of the world. It's not the case when you're leading as opposed to managing people, especially when those people themselves are young and highly motivated and think that they also have all the answers. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of learning. And again, you know, I, I sit in this really interesting kind of juncture generationally. So I kind of sit exactly on the tipping point between Gen X and Gen Y. And in that team that I was managing, I had a portion of the team that were Gen X and a portion of the team that were Gen Y. I treated everybody exactly the same, which can be effective, but also needs a little bit more sophistication to it as well. So I'm curious, can we dive into that a little bit more? So sitting in a team of Gen X, Gen Y, what did you discover were the things that you needed to do differently for each cohort? I mean, that's kind of the basic stuff. The Gen X has tended to prefer more interpersonal, one-on-one -on -one trust building time. The Gen um, X's? Yep. Okay. Um, the Gen Y's, you know, sort of valued less formal time. Uh, so they would get more value out of interactions that were, say, for example, in the car driving to a client meeting. Yeah, again, very much generalizing and categorizing across what was a diverse group of people. But, you know, they typically would want to ask the questions and not be told. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> whereas Gen Xers, even though they were you know, older than me, you know, the majority of them newer in the industry and were, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, sort of respectful of the success that I'd had. So they were more seeking advice and they were open to being told at least suggestions, try this, or this has worked for me, this might work for you. You know, whereas the Gen Y tendency was more, yeah, I see what you're doing, but I want to do it this way. Can you just help me to do it this way? Because I know this is the way to do it. And, you know, that's a lot of that's about strengths management, you know, as well. And, and, and that was ultimately, I think, the kind of the, not quite the magic sauce, but maybe the marinade that I sort of discovered worked eventually was actually look at the group more as a composition of strengths uh, and the entities that house those strengths and then deploy those accordingly. Um, so I completely shook down and rebuilt the way that account management worked, for example. Uh, you know, it used to be tenured. 
you know, the people with the most experience would manage the biggest accounts and go talk to the most senior and corporate people. When in actual fact, one of my most highly tenured people was one of the most entrepreneurial. He had a couple of side hustles, even though, of course, in 2006, they weren't called side hustles. And, and he was this fantastic brain, you know, just a real, he was actually a laser scientist, Rudy, just incredibly intellect guy. And, and then deeply driven, deep entrepreneurial. So we started off putting him on major accounts and, and he would get deeply frustrated with the process and the time that these major corporates would take to make decisions. And then one of my youngest guys, Ming Chang, Ming was, was very process orientated. Yeah, and, and he would just go step by step by step. So I flipped them over, put Ming on major accounts, put Rudy on the more um, you know, private, ownership and SME market in Western Sydney. And almost immediately they both, you know, kind of found their way. Uh, so that's and, actually and quite much more success. That's quite radical to go from a tenure based allocation of roles and activities to a strength based one. Did you have any pushback from a culture point of view? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I can imagine. It's like, I've been here the longest. So I should be getting these big accounts and now you're changing my status. Yeah, so there's, I mean, yeah, you can you can get right on the couch with all of that stuff, right? I mean, there's status, there's you know, sort of uh, respect. There's also you know, remuneration because the expectation is that the big accounts are where the money is, and and obviously that's where the rewards are. But it didn't take long for the proof in the pudding to show through, because the results were quite quick, and the biggest thing was the feedback from the customers was perfect. You know, the customer doesn't care about your status. The customer doesn't care necessarily about your tenure once they trust you. They just care about, do I feel valued? Am I getting the outcomes that I need? And do you engage with me the way that I want to be engaged with? And that ultimately, I think beyond strengths, reflected the values that these people held individually and then the values that we collectively as a team took out to our customers and said, hey, look, this is actually how we want to service you. And this is why we're changing what we do. Will that work for you? Yes, no, maybe we'll give it a go. Um, yeah, but the results spoke for themselves. So the customers were giving it a thumbs up. How long did it take for the team members to come around? I mean, was that a three-year experience or was it? Oh, that- God, no, 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 no. I mean, it's, so this was recruitment. So recruiters have a goldfish bowl, you know, sort of attention span and memory lag. So within a couple of months of essentially saying, right, so you guys were essentially sort of really unhappy servicing the customer groups you'd been allocated to based on the sort of historical model. Now you're telling me you're much more enjoying your work. The customers are much happier and you're making better money. Ipso facto, this was a good idea. (laughs) Okay, awesome. I love it, goldfish bowl. All right, so you had this turnaround experience, which was like baptism of fire and a bit of humility pill by the sounds of it, toning down that early 20s or mid-20s arrogance. I've been there, I've been there. I know what that's like. Yeah. Um, Then where did you end up? So the experience retrospectively was fantastic and and was was really one of the, the kind of cornerstones. But at the time, it was, yeah, it was challenging to the point of exhaustion. Yeah, and again, all of the you know, sort of leadership practices that when I now see in my clients and I'm, I'm sort of coaching them towards a different outcome are painfully <laughs> yeah, sort of sympathetic. So, you know, working 14, 15 hour days, 
being the last person out of the office and just the sort of sheer momentum that we were driving through the business that was taxing. I also had a series of bosses, some of whom were very enabling and supportive and some of whom were lesser so. Uh, so that took its toll. And then quite frankly, I had some, I had some, um, some personal stuff going on, um, which ended up resulting in a bereavement. So that combination actually sort of, I wouldn't say sort of broke the trajectory, but it certainly sort of had me skip a step, right? So I'd I'd met Belle, we decided to go take some time overseas. And then when we came back, we both actually went back to our former employers, but then with very different volitions and different approaches to what we wanted to do. So I recognized that actually what I really wanted to do was learn about leadership and I still needed to you know, generate an income and you know, we're going to get married and we're going to get you know, a mortgage and all of that good fun stuff. So what's the best way for me to deploy the skill set that I have and learn about leadership, get as close as I can to the most senior leaders I can. So that took me into executive search as opposed to sort of mid-management transactional recruitment. So I then went to two. So this is staying in recruitment, but focusing on executives. Still in recruitment, okay. but doing, yeah, the more senior stuff and also doing more work around transformative leadership. So, you know, new CEOs in corporates wanting to you know, take the business or needing to be mandated quite often to take the business in a different direction. How do we do that? How do we do that through structure? How do we do that through process? How do we do that through people? And then also private equity. Yeah, and that real, uh, you know, sort of cutting of the teeth in, you know, how do you take a business and for better or worse, depending on your view on the PE method, you know, transform something radically quickly to sell it for a, a compound multiplier. So I did that. And then I basically built a practice for a, an executive search company. And that again was a, was a sort of a tipping point and a, and a fork in the road for me because again, very similar conversation, a GM of a business who wanted to hire me, asked me, what do I really want to do? And I tell him, well, I really want to build a business. And that could have been the end of that conversation if what he wanted to do was pay me a salary and a bonus and have me sit in the corner and do a job. But in actual fact, it went the other way. Uh, his response was, that's perfect because that's what this job is. We're going to pay you a salary, but we want, this is a market entry. We have no brand recognition in this space. We have no you know, network that we can plug you into. There's not even a database for you to, you know, sort of work your way through. Uh, we think strategically that there's going to be an effective mix between what we do have and where we want you to go, but it's all going to be on you. And this guy had himself built and sold two businesses. So uh, he knew what he was talking about. So in a, in fact, they put you in as a business builder, paid you a salary so you didn't have to freak out over money stuff, which is yeah, what you normally have to do when you set you up your own business. Yeah. And so you had the comfort of a salary and then you started this thing from scratch and, and grew it effectively. Yeah, grew it effectively. I mean, yeah. the facts of the case sound far more praiseworthy than they are because <laughs> within six months... I was the highest revenue generator in the office and within 18 months I was the highest revenue generator in Australia. But that, that those are facts, but the fact of the matter at a greater scale is that the business as a whole tanked. Really? So my trajectory looked sort of artificially <laughs> positive. Uh, I was doing a good job. I was overachieving against all my own milestones, but the business which was very orientated towards Australia's commodity market, mining, 
and, oh, yeah. and, and you know mining services and so on that hit the roadblock that everybody that you know worked in that space is very aware of this is going back to you know kind of uh, 2012 13 um so all of the people that were working on those accounts were having a very very torrid time mm-hmm. and i came in you know to do my risque you know little uh, we don't know if this is going to work and just went pow but it was interesting. So, and you know, one of the you know the keys to my approach, to our approach, you know, that the, the leader really is the divining influence on performance. You know, I've just I've had that proven to me personally so many times. You know, from very early jobs, you know, on poolside as a lifeguard in my teens, watching a new shift supervisor come on, and the whole feel of the team's performance shift, all the way through to this you know sort of instance here, where the GM who hired me got fired the owner of the business who had built this fantastic thing from the ground up to be an international consultancy over 30 years came to, to take over the vanguard of the business in Sydney, which was where he'd started. Uh, he, he, he sort of moved, uh, moved to Perth. He sat me down and the first thing he said to me is I wouldn't hired you. <laughs> Excellent start. <laughs> right. Thanks, John. It really gives me the warm and fluffies. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have hired you, but, and I didn't agree with uh, with Pete hiring you because you don't you, what you're doing doesn't fit with our business model. What he then went on to say and was gracious <laughs> and, and, and commercial enough to say is, "But I'm glad you're here because you're the only reason why this office is still open." <laughs> and yeah, that, that's like a in, pat and slap, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's kind of like, or a slap and then a pat. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting combination, put it that way. Um, and we had a, a sort of an interesting relationship, you know, for the remainder of the time that I was there, you know, sort of based on that beginning. But essentially where it ended up was the columns on the temple were crumbling. You know, I was having a diminishing return from my own endeavours under the, the company's, you know, sort of banner. And when I eventually sat John down two days before my first child was born and said, John, I'm resigning to go out by myself, way into business with somebody. As a, oh, my know, goodness. Um, <laughs> he wished me all the best and told me he had absolute faith in my success. Uh, I can't. That's a pivotal moment, right? So you've built this thing, a huge trajectory, mining market bottoms out, your business goes flatline. You, the new boss says, nah, I thought you were crap but I'm glad you're here because you're the only one making us money. And then you didn't make money. And then you were like, I'm out of here. And you're about to have a baby. Oh, I was Whoa. still, I was still <laughs> making money, but um, they, so the a big part of my income was at risk based on the profitability of the business unit. Oh, okay. Right. So I was bringing all the money in. I wasn't getting it. Everybody <laughs> else is spending back. it. Everybody yeah. else is spending it. And, and essentially, I have a huge amount of time and respect for all of my colleagues right then. They're fantastic at what they do. And they were just in a horrible trough of the market. Yeah. But the revenue that I was generating was essentially paying their salaries. All right. So here you are. You're about to step off the cliff and start your own venture. <laughs> yeah. So that was, five year, that was five years ago. And here I am today. You know, that first partnership that I, that I left uh, corporate to enter into, you know, lasted two years and an amicable separation based on a probably a combination of a philosophical and a strategic disagreement around how we wanted to develop a business that just could not be reconciled into the continuation of the partnership. So I then launched, co-founded 4i um, with a researcher, colleague of mine, um, a little bit over three years ago. And we, we stand here today now with 
a merry group of fantastic folk that I'm um, you know, deeply honoured you know, to sort of be at the helm of you know, and an international uh, consulting business focused on leadership and team performance. Mm. So interesting leadership experiences from your point of view and that executive search experience gives you insight into how the very executives with large remit handle these big transformative leadership gigs. And then you've created your own leadership consultancy business called 4i Leadership. So tell us, what, where does the 4i come from? Is that, is that based on your leadership philosophy? What is that all about? Yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. And, it, and what's been, been interesting to me is how that's actually shifted. So when uh, Penny and I founded the business and, you know, as a lot of entrepreneurial startups occur, the conversation we had in a cafe was around, you know, what are we going to call this thing? And at that time, we hinged the name over what we do for leaders, that we inform them, we improve them, we help them innovate, and we inspire them to become the great leaders they can be. So that was four eyes. What it's then become is, uh, you know, to an extent, a little bit more philosophical and not so much about what we do, but what we believe leaders do and how leaders lead. So the four eyes as they now are, and look, yeah, like any philosophy, this is going to be buffered and changed and you know, evolved. But what, they, what it now is, is imagine, ignite, immerse, and inspire. So inspire is the constant. But I think ultimately what it boils down and, and a little bit more, you know, sort of about my personal philosophy, but, you know, I was raised by leaders. You know, I've been exposed to leadership, you know, all sort of different levels and layers and can go as grandiose as say, you know, I've twice sat in the vaulted halls of Buckingham Palace and then I've had conversations, you know, with bus supervisors about bus drivers and I've learned as much from both of those experiences um, about leadership and about how, as a leader, you make the world better. And this is the key to my ethos is that better leaders will give us a better world. And that I think that leaders have got the greatest opportunity to create a world that we all need. And I mean that at both a global and an individual level. The world only exists through our own individual experience of it. Yes, there's a collective. Yes, there's a global. But ultimately, it really only exists at an individual level. And so coming back to the four eyes, the primary tenant of leadership is to imagine the better world that your leadership can create. Once you have that established, you then ignite your own potential and the potential of those that you lead to create that better world. And in order to do that, you actually need to immerse yourself in the journey of leadership. And there's so many connotations of that you mm. know, term. I mean, just simply immersion as a mode of focus, you know, as a move away from constant perpetual motion. And I'm on to the next thing and I'm into the next meeting and I've been a head of sales and now I'm going to be a, you know, a, a CEO and then I'm going to be a chairperson. It's like, well, just immerse yourself with where you are right now, maximize your contribution, maximize your impact. Then we can look at the next thing. And the inspiration piece is, is kind of the, the ultimate scalability of leadership you know that if your leadership becomes inspirational um through your immersion through your ignition and through your imagination of what you can achieve you know then that ultimately is is how 
your leadership can most efficiently convey what you believe you can achieve to the, the greatest body possible. Mm, that's really elegant. I like that. Uh, just one piece on the immerse yourself in the journey. You talked about, you know, having a path, you know, trajectory and being present in the moment. When you think about leadership journey, what context or how would you describe that with folks that you work with? Uh, frankly, it depends who I'm talking to and the way that they view their journey. So, I mean, for me, you know, leadership is, is a journey of constant learning, uh, you know, constant self-improvement. And I think the phrase that, well, there's two phrases that, that underpin two philosophies that have most deeply resonated with me you know, at a sort of a philosophical level about the leadership journey. Um, one is an interpretation by uh, an American guy, Dan Buchner, of a, a Greek approach called techni, which is, and techni is really about mastery. Um, How do you spell that? Uh, T-E-C-H-N-E. So Dan's interpretation of techni is basically find something that you love that serves other people and then become incredibly good at it. That then becomes your life's work, right? So I have found leadership to be the thing that above all else I love and will devote myself to. Uh, I'm on the journey to become a master in it in order that I can serve others, serve the world, serve other leaders. And the, the second phrase, philosophy, is a Mennonite uh, religious term. Mennonite? Mennonite, yes. Yeah, so okay. Mennonites and the Amish are you know, kind of like you know, brethren. Um, yep. It essentially talks about having no fear of the work that never ends. Wow. And have my, no fear of the work that have never no ends. fear of the work that never ends. And I mean, and, and the, you know, what they're talking about with the Amish is really that your devotion to your community never ends until, you know, it ends, which is when the community ends rather than you ending so that your, your work is constant for the community. And that even after your death, you know, the work that you've done propels the community to continue on and to do the work. So my interpretation and application of, well, really a combination of those philosophies is I found the work that I love, I'll devote myself to. I'm on the journey to mastery. And I view that as me embracing work that will never end. And that, that is something that I've moved past the fear of and into embracing that work. And, and, you know, every day, what can I learn about leadership? What leader can I add value to? What contribution can I make as a leader? Uh, and that I hope that work will outlast me. That's beautiful. What's interesting, Tim, about, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about your story and I'm curious about, so there's the, the Tim pre setting up own business. And then there's this different version of Tim, which is immersed in the ethos and calling of leadership, as you described technique and yeah, the fear yeah. of the, have no fear of the work that never ends. Was there a pivotal point where you transformed into Tim 2.0? Like if it, <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me, like there was. So what, it, what happens though was I walked into this phone box and when I was in there, I unbuttoned my shirt and I came out with this <laughs> emblem on my chest. No, <laughs> well, it's not. a big shift in perspective, right? It's like the ambitious young Pommy, uh, I'm going to go prove the world. I want to have a crack. I want to get experience. I'm going to, and then to this, you know, this is work that goes beyond me. So that's a big shift in perspective like how did it come about was it gradual evolution or was it a pivotal 
you know, telephone box kind of moment. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I can, I can put a pin in the board and say that's when I can define it happened. But then like every, you know, story of, and if I call this the successful evolution of me, like every story of success that appears overnight, you know, there's been a huge on-ramp. So the moment, the pin in the board was when I sat down to write the first, you know, plan for 4i. Uh, and what I wrote was an obituary. And that came from a conversation I'd had with an innovation consultant, Sydney-based guy called Nils Vesk, who's a fantastic innovation speaker and author. And we had this, you know, I met him at a seminar and then we had this long breakfast meeting, which he was generous enough to have me, you know, sort of chat with me for two, three hours. And the pivotal point in that moment was when he talked about a product development process where you start by writing the obituary of the product. And that that, is in innovation sort of terms, the best way to build something that has lasting brand resonance beyond the normal product life cycle. That if you start by thinking about what will the product be remembered for, then you're so much more likely to orientate the product towards the nudges psychologically and the triggers and the market activation points, which actually build brand standing and value beyond the sort of features and benefits of the specific product. So I went away from that conversation and, and that was the one thing that really sort of resonated with me, despite the fact that Nils is an absolute vault of knowledge and I've got three of his books and this is uh, endless, you know, sort of fount of bounty from Nils Vesk. But, um, and Nils, if you hear this, um, mate, you're How do you spell his first name, Nils? Nils, N-I-L-S. Oh. He's very Aussie, but there's, I think, Nils. Slavic um, ancestry there. And Nils, if I've got that wrong, uh, please don't take any offense to your grandparents. Um, so yeah, so obituary of 4i. So I, I basically wrote the first business plan for 4i in terms of impact and legacy and what would the business contribute to the world of leadership. And I think when I, when I kind of came away from that document and I, and I went, I was living in Dremoyne at the time, went and walked around the block a few times and the subconscious doing the work then really led me to think about well how will i know if that's worked and how will i judge the success of it and a little bit like a meteor just as i had that exact thought the phone rang and of course being you know the dedicated entrepreneur that i am the phone is permanently attached to me um i answered the phone and it was one of my best customers at the time this amazing guy who I had a huge amount of respect for who had sort of catalyzed my coaching career by asking me to coach his son, which as a new parent, when he made the request, was like a deeply honoring request, uh, you know, to help somebody's child. I, I, I can't think of any higher compliment. And I, I, I shared a little bit of this with him. And I said, Greg, you know, sort of what is it that caused you to ask me to help your boy and, and why is it that you keep coming back to me with work? There's plenty of other people who do what I do. And you know, the, the exact response he gave me is, is sort of lost, you know, sort of in the sleep deprivation of, uh, <laughs> of parenting. But the summation of it was every time I talk to you, I get something valuable out of it. And I think that then stimulated a view of success and it all starts to get wrapped up them in this, you know, it's the work that never ends and it's this constant learning and it's this ongoing journey 
that my view of success now is essentially that success is what you are and what you do and is iterative based on the value that you create for your customers. You know, so you can have and be successful every day as long as as many of the interactions that you have with your customers and through your business and your team also you know, to your customers is adding value. And the best way I can think to add value is to enable leaders to be transformative, you know, to transform themselves, their own behaviors, their own capabilities, and then the businesses that they lead and through those businesses, the world itself. And therefore what success is not is what you have and what you've done. So if I go back to pre that moment, Tim, I think, you know, certainly in my teenage years and as an undergraduate studying organizational behavior, if anybody had said to me at that point, hey, who do you know who's successful? I would have pointed to Uncle Mike. So I had a, still have, fortunately, this uncle who was a global marketing director for Diageo. And he was in Japan and in Europe and in China and in Australia and was never at home was always on a plane, was always in a French restaurant entertaining clients and was launching Johnny Walker, Black Label or Smirnoff or whatever. And, you know, he had a fabulous car and beautiful wife and this massive house and he was constantly on the go. And, you know, Mike still is a, you know, a fantastic guy, but he had a heart attack at 52 and now has his own whiskey business. Um, and, and I think his view of, you know, sort of what he achieved and how he achieved it's changed. Um, I would then also look at my father who, you know, had a long successful military career, left the army as a colonel, built a fabulous consulting business. But then when his wife died, and that was the, that was the personal uh, disruption that I mentioned uh, before, um, the business evaporated. Mm mainly because as successful as it was as an IT security consultancy, you know, they were a project orientated business and the value of them as a, as an advisory firm and the knowledge that really was the true value of their business, I think ultimately hadn't been sufficiently, you know, sort of messaged and, and, and embedded into their customer's mindset. So when dad's business disappeared, they just went to IBM. So, yeah, I think now, I mean, I look at people that have lots of stuff and I basically go, good on you. I look at myself and if I need to feel or test my measure of success, I go talk to my customers. Hmm. I like that. So success is what you are and what you do. It's iterative and adding value. And it's very, that's a very service-oriented definition of success, absolutely. And, um, and I think, as you described version 2.0 to the earlier version of Tim, you can see that when you have to put deliberate focus on an entity that you're going to invest yourself into, like your own business, and you spend the effort thinking about the meaning and why you would put so much effort into it, and is that going to sustain you? Having something that extends beyond the material reward into looking after other people is the sustaining model uh, for sure. It's still easy to fall into the doing trap <laughs> to bring that thing to being. And to get over that, I think it's a good, 
is an important pathway. I talk about it moving from achiever to amplifier. That we let go of some of the negative habits of achiever, which is the overwork, the stress, the the 15-hour days that lead to early heart attacks, to thinking about, all right, let's repurpose what we're doing and amplify our message and our method and the people around us so that we can inspire others to do great things and therefore have a ripple effect, a magnifying and amplifying effect through the work that we do. And that way we can, we can just calm the hell down. <laughs> so it doesn't always have to be up to us. We're in it for the long haul. We're making a long-term future together. That's beautiful. So, Tim, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and your spectacular, fascinating leadership journey. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with in terms of a key tip that would help them take the first step to being a more centered leader, a one that is focused on mastery technique and having no fear of the work that never ends. So moving into that philosophy as a leader, how would you encourage people to move towards that? Yeah, no, but perfect question. Um, uh, uh, thank you. So I think, you know, I can, I can really sort of respond with three things that I think are, you know, both an effective beginning and, and, and really something that should be sort of the foundational columns of this approach to leadership really sort of in, in, you know, in perpetuity. So, you know, these are, these are things that I'm, very much working on and, and still working on uh, and that will be the work that never ends. Um, but also, you know, these are topics that I come up against and work with people to work through all the time at chief executive, you know, down to first, you know, sort of leadership role level. So values, intention, stillness. So really very clearly define what your values are, and if you are going to, you know, sort of to sort of take anything, uh, you know, from what I've said, how those values will be of service and then live your values. Right. So if my values are integrity, collaboration, care, commitment and courage, how do I live those in every single interaction? And again, if I want to know if I'm doing a good job with that, I go talk to my customers intention and this really is about the immersion piece and uh, the ignition piece and the inspiration piece so again i see this a lot you know the the impact of unintended consequence can be one of the most debilitating outcomes of a leader who isn't paying attention to their intention and really looking at every interaction and saying, what do I, what do I want to impact here? What do I want to achieve? What is my intention going into this meeting, going into this pitch, going into this employee review and really making sure that there's not a trigger word in there that disrupts that intention. You know, I had an interaction with a, the senior business leader three days ago. And the one word that came out of that conversation that really struck me that there's some work to be done on his attention uh, to his intention was that he was describing uh, giving someone feedback saying that what they had done was unacceptable behavior. Now you look at the dictionary definition of unacceptable and it kind of goes, oh yeah, all right, we know we've got some work to do. But the way that that lands culturally in Australia is basically you're one step short of being fired. Mm. Now that unacceptable behavior pretty much means you're done. Now that's what, not what this guy meant at all. What he meant in that interaction was there's a lot of room for improvement here. That is substandard to the values that we maintain as a business. We need to do some work on this. What he said was that's unacceptable. You need to do some work on that. And the message that that fellow leader that, you know, sort of landed that 
tone and that implied unintentional consequence was basically going to be, oh God, <laughs> like, am I going to lose my job? How bad is this? You know, you lose that psychological safety, which then crushes problem solving, innovation, you know, sort of brand or ambassadorship. And, and it's very hard to revive that. And then the last one, stillness. This is the greatest challenge that I put to myself. You know, I look at my kids and what I see most significantly mirrored of me in them is the fact that they're both perpetual motion devices. <laughs> Even when they're asleep, <laughs> they never sit still. Yeah, you know, they won't sit at the table. They won't even be strapped into a high chair to have dinner. And the people on my board that I you know, really honor uh, the advice of consistently tell me to slow down, stop, work on that thing, prioritize. Everything that you want to do is good and should be done. Don't try and do it all right now. Take the to-do list of 60, make it three, and then do one thing at a time. And I see this in my clients and you know, my sort of fellow leaders in the world all the time, you know, constant moving, you know, a diary which is so full, they have to ask their EA to put time in the diary so they can go to the bathroom. Um, you know, that mm. is busyness that is not conducive to business. And I think the biggest loss that a leader experiences when they're just moving constantly is they don't actually have that reflection time. They don't have that decompression time. And a coach of mine a few years ago, you know, sort of got me to commit to doing a stillness practice where every day when I'm driving home from work, I pull over into this little lookout. I get out of the car. I put a timer for one minute on my watch and I have 60 seconds of stillness. And I stand there and just look out at what's in front of me. And I just let whatever thoughts come, come. You know, sometimes there's a lot of frustration. Sometimes there's a lot of, ah, shit. Sorry, if I shouldn't have said that word. Um, Carry on. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I should have done that thing today or I could have handled that better or you know, I, I said I'd do that and I haven't got to it. But, you know, just after that 60 seconds and it's not, you know, meditation strictly speaking you know, i haven't got my eyes closed i'm not sitting in a lotus position i'm not focusing on my breathing but for me that is a meditative process to just pause and what always happens after that whether it's immediately or it's two hours later or it's the next day is the unconscious does the work and that having paused i get an idea or a prognosis or you know, just oh, that was the thing I couldn't recall. And I, I'm very rigorous with my consistency of that practice now because I know the benefit of it. it yeah, 60 seconds is probably the most valuable part of my day. That's fantastic. I love that. I love that this, <laughs> this beautiful gem has come at the end of the interview. And uh, I so advocate for stillness. In fact, ironically, about 15 years ago when I had my first executive coach and I was telling him I wanted to write a book called uh, Searching for Stillness. And he goes, well, that doesn't sound very still if you have to search for it. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and it was my first sort of insight about, oh, you're right. Like stillness is not an activity. It's an experience. It's a beingness piece. And when as leaders, we focus on the beingness, everything else gets better in the doingness. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insight and your wisdom with us. And I love your 4i philosophy and approach to helping leaders 
do better in the world. Uh, better leaders, better world. I believe that too. And I'm in service to that mission too. And it's lovely to meet like-minded colleagues and to share our wisdom to help others flourish as well. So thanks again. No, thank you, Zoe. I mean, I hope that your audience will, you know, will glean some value from today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And uh, yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you got heaps out of that. I sure did. I'm really going to focus on a couple of key takeaways. The one insight I really loved was have no fear of the work that never ends. Isn't that just a lovely thought that's sort of uplifting when you go through tough times in leadership? I love the idea of obituary for the business. Definitely going to do that one. And stillness. Practicing stillness, I think, will serve us no matter wherever, whoever we are. If you like this, I'll be blogging about these kinds of topics and more when it comes to people stuff in my blog called People Stuff. If you want to get access to that, you'll also get weekly articles on people stuff and leadership, notification of upcoming events either online or in person in different cities around Australia. And you'll also get advance notice of my forthcoming book called People Stuff. The tagline is yet to be determined, but you'll be the first to know when you sign up. The link is in the show notes or you can go to my homepage, zoerath.com. So thanks again for listening. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. It's so awesome to have you here. And if you're a return listener, thank you so much for being a loyal listener. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best and have a fantastic, fabulous day. Live well, lead well.